Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of the Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of the Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm dandy. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, uh, following the murder of multiple Asian women at m several massage parlors in Atlanta, many have questioned how this could happen. Is it the easy access to guns? Is it an over-sexualized society that condemns those who cannot have sex to mockery as incels? Is it a toxic mix of religion and sex shaming? Or is it the movies? Writing in the Washington Post, Sonia Rao suggests that Hollywood and popular culture in general are to at least, maybe not to blame for the shooting, but at least have created a sort of dehumanization of uh, Asian American people and that helped contribute to it. Here is Rao, quote, uh, the Atlanta murders occurred amid a surge in anti-Asian hate crimes, both extreme examples of the harm inflicted upon Asian American communities. In Hollywood, it can be it can more subtly mani uh, manifest in objectified portrayals like that of A Benihana Christmas, which was an episode of The Office in which Michael Scott cannot recognize Asian waitresses, uh, or the running gag on Scrubs about Dr. Kelso fetishizing Asian women. It pro proliferates through the widespread appropriation of Me So Horny, the line famously uttered by a Vietnamese Vietnamese sex worker in Stanley Kubrick's full metal jacket that men have repeated while catcalling Asian women since the film premiered in 1987. End quote. Uh, it is a tricky topic to be sure. On the one hand, Michael Scott is the joke in A Benihana Christmas. He, his racism makes him the subject of mockery. He, the whole point is that he is a bad person for what he is doing. Um, and it would be hard to make an honest movie about Vietnam, Vietnam and the, the abuse of the Vietnamese people without highlighting the plight of sex workers and their mingling with American GIs uh, during that conflict. Certainly, Stanley Kubrick is not to blame for two live crews stealing that line and making it a catcall via their song. Now, uh, and yet, you can't really blame Asian actors and actresses for feeling as if they are often little more than punchlines. For every Steven Yoon, uh, the... Oscar-nominated star of Minari, who rose to fame as the beloved Glenn on The Walking Dead, there is no one else. Literally, there is no one else. He is the first Asian man ever to be nominated for Best Lead Actor at the Oscars, uh, which is a stat that kind of speaks for itself. Alyssa, what responsibility do artists have to balance depicting the world as it is or as they see it while also trying to mitigate negative or stereotypical depictions? And what responsibility do viewers have to ensure that such depictions are received appropriately? I mean, I think that there is a lot going on here. And I thought Sonia, who is a colleague of mine, uh, of course, did an admirable job of not sort of placing blame of not drawing a direct causal chain between the Atlanta spa shootings and any you know, particular depiction in pop culture. Um, I do think that it is absolutely the case that Hollywood has had a very limited sense of what, you know, what it's willing to allow Asian and Asian American actors, particularly Asian American women um, to do for an incredibly long time. And so I think the, the the best answer to your question is that there's nothing wrong with depicting people acting racist towards Asian characters. There's nothing wrong with depicting the sort of ugly realities of you know, American patronage of Vietnamese sex workers during the Vietnam War. The challenge is if that's the only thing that you portray. Um, and if the only stories you tell about Asians and Asian American people are stories in which their primary role is to be 
commented on by white people in some way and in particular to act as a lens for white characters racism you're not depicting the world as a whole right you're not depicting a broad range of human experience um you're depicting a tiny slice of it and the sort of willingness to fall back on those stereotypes whether you know it's of the sort of weirdly desexed asian man in 16 candles um you know sort of um asian asian american sex workers in some of the movies you cited and austin powers um there's just a weird lack of imagination there and you know it's been interesting to see the success of um you know the sort of traditional commercial success of something like crazy rich asians which um simultaneously which is an interesting i thought the movie was not great the novels that it's based on are much more interesting in part because they are a dialogue between a chinese american character and a variety characters from a variety of asian cultures um sort of both mainland China, the Straits Chinese in Singapore and Malaysia. And that becomes a really interesting dialogue. Like, what does it mean to be Asian? Uh, what does it mean to be Asian American, et cetera? And that's all wrapped up in sort of a, you know, a frothy romantic comedy. And that movie did well at the box office for a romantic comedy. Um, I think the sequels have been greenlit, although I'm not entirely sure. Um, and, you know, movies like that and Minari are a step forward towards portraying the world more broadly as it is for Asians and Asian Americans in which their lives are not always and you know and are not primarily references for white people to work at various other things. I think the question of you know how you make sure audiences get the right message is that's a whole different can of worms and it's a really <laughs> challenging one, right? I mean right. like how do you guarantee that people don't act like idiots? That's, right. I mean, if we could solve right. that question, we would be so rich, we wouldn't need a movie podcast. Well, but, we'd be out of business, let's yeah, be honest. Yeah, exactly. And, but at the same time, you know, if it's worth asking if something has gone wrong in a depiction, if consistently large numbers of people are taking away from it something other than what the creators intended. And Michael Scott on The Office is a really interesting example of this. You know, he is someone who is the butt of the joke on the show and yet the sort of most quotable character people he he kind of gave fans an excuse um because you could sort of you could play this double game where you recognize that he was an idiot and still kind of engage in some of the behaviors quote his catchphrases um and there was always sort of a protective layer of irony there and you know whether that's what Mike Schur and his collaborators intended, it's an interesting question. Um, I, you know, I don't think you can stop people from reading texts in insane ways, but I do think that if a lot of people are consistently misreading you over a period of decades, maybe you said something you didn't intend. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's tricky, right, Peter? Because a movie like Full Metal Jacket is, like, just objectively... It is an anti-war film. It is not a. It is not a pro-war film. It is. It is just that is what uh, Kubrick was trying to make, and it's of a piece with Paths of Glory and Doctor Strangelove. Uh, you know, and this Barry Lyndon, and and, and Barry Lyndon, deeply anti-war film. Um, a, a, but on the other hand, you know, you do, and part of that is the uh, the treatment of the the Asian prostitute in in this film, and in the the kind of way. 
you know, she is seen by the the GIs. But you know, at the same time, it, it I, like the the bad fan critique is real. You know, I I know very few people in the military who do not love Full Metal Jacket. Um, uh, and as somebody who you know grew up in a military household and was uh and is remains fond of the military i love it as well i mean it's it is it is it is a striking and and singular picture um uh, i i don't know how to i don't really know how to square that circle I don't, well I mean, maybe it can't be squared um i mean i'd also know that there's you there are multiple kinds of anti-war movies right i mean you can make an anti-war movie like full metal jacket that is primarily concerned with the war and the sort of larger military training programs effect on the people who are fighting it, but that is not primarily concerned with the people on whom that war is being waged and who are living with the effects of that war at home, right? Um, it can be, you know, it can be a magnificent anti-war movie that is humane and interested in American soldiers and still be a movie that is not, you know, deeply concerned with the impact of the Vietnam War on Vietnamese people. Yeah. Peter, what do you think? I mean, Full Metal Jacket shows um, American soldiers making overtly racist jokes, not just about, uh, not just sort of acting in a kind of implicitly or even explicitly uh, racist way towards, um, you know, the towards Asians, but also towards uh, towards Black Americans. Um, and I think, you know, it's fairly clear that Kubrick wanted to show that part of the horror of war is that it dehumanizes uh, other people and it makes you it makes you insensitive not just actually not just to the people that you're fighting but even to the people around you and even to the people that you are sort of ostensibly fighting for and fighting with the the, the you know the brothers uh, who are who are on your side um, and that it just it makes you a worse person it makes you a lesser person um, it makes you less human and that is uh, that's that's Kubrick's critique of war or one of his critiques of war that runs not just in Full Metal Jacket, but throughout his filmography. Um, you know, I, I think one of the other things here, though, is not just sort of the uh, some of these particular portrayals, but another through line here in this conversation is uh, that this is the only way, you know, in some ways that Hollywood has maybe not ex ex uh, exclusively, but very frequently, this is the way that Hollywood has portrayed um, has portrayed Asians, and these are, in some ways, the only uh, or most of the opportunities that have been given to Asian actors. Um, and I think, you know, that's sort of another way to think about this, which is, um, in some ways, it is a product of commerce and commercial expectations um, and cultural, you know, sort of the, the, the cultural environment in which Hollywood makes movies, right? You've got mostly white filmmakers historically. Historically, you have mostly white audiences. Um, and so you end up with a kind of white-centric viewpoint built into that, again, historically, maybe not this year, um, but at least kind of uh, throughout the hundred or so years of Hollywood history. Um, and also just sort of even even beyond kind of the, the, the white centricness of, of, of the view is, is that there's a, just a lack of experience with Asian culture, with Asian, Asian individuals and families, um, whether that's, uh, you know, in Asia or whether that's Asian transplants uh, to the United States. Um, and like I said, that's a, that is in some ways a product of culture and um, commerce and commercial expectations. But I think what might end up solving or at least changing this a lot is also 
commerce and culture and trade. Um, you know, on this podcast, we have talked an awful lot about the complexities and in some cases, the downsides of China becoming a huge market for Hollywood. Uh, Godzilla versus Kong, which is certain to be better than Batman versus Superman, just did huge business in its opening weekend um, uh, in China. And, you know, the, the Chinese market has really shaped Hollywood's output and is going to continue to perhaps might uh, might shape it even more in you know over the next decade than it has. Um, and so there are some upsides here. And one of them, I think, is going to be many potential roles for Asian performers, different kinds of roles, as well as for uh, creators, right, for writers see, and directors. See, it's it's interesting you bring this up because uh, I want to I want to push back kind of strongly against that. There was a, there was a really interesting thread by Wesley Yang on Twitter uh, a, a year or so ago, in which he kind of talks about how if if Asian Americans, if people, if American, if Asian people of Asian descent who live in America want to see more. Uh, movies with people like themselves, they need to not rely on the Chinese market because the Chinese market is not super interested in movies uh, about uh, with with Asian. Now, look, the 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 numbers are it's it's a small sample size, but Crazy Rich Asians did not do super well in China, if I remember correctly. Am I am I wrong on that, Alyssa? Am I am I misremembering? I don't think it did huge business there. Yeah. Um, and that I mean that's a movie that is more interested again in. The sort of particular culture of the Straits Chinese in mm-hmm. Singapore, Hong Kong, um, Malaysia, um, but I think that there there's going to be a sort of uneven effect. I think we're actually seeing a lot of prominent Chinese actresses and actors get small roles in the Marvel movies, for example, um, and these aren't necessarily substantive roles. They're not necessarily roles in which characters get to, you know be culturally distinct as well as sort of fully fleshed out within the context of the plot. But at least when you have, you know, Chinese actors playing superheroes or scientists, even if it's only fleetingly, they're doing something other than, you know, the roles that they've traditionally been allocated in the past. And so I think that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that we will see coming out of the sort of the rising importance of the Chinese market. I think that is less likely to drive the kind of gentle, interesting family stories that we um, that I think have been engaging and interesting to American audiences, like Minari or and Parasite doesn't actually fit this description at all. But Parasite, I think, what we may see instead is um, Korean culture, which you know South Korea has made a real effort to build a cultural machine that can be an agent of uh, sort of diplomacy and influence. Um, I think as Korean culture gets more um, sort of mainstream in the United States, as you see with the rise in popularity of BTS and Blackpink um, in music and then in movies like Minari, certain anime. Um, I think you may see Americans be more interested in certain kinds of imports. And then you may end up with sort of more art house movies like Minari, like Nomadland, which notably is you know, a movie of, by a Chinese director that is largely about white Americans. Um, so I think that we may see sources of progress on a bunch of different fronts. Um, and the interesting question will be what they all add up to. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think, you know, it is on the one hand correct that today's Chinese film goers um, and film audiences are not super interested necessarily in, um, in you know, it, American art house fair about 
Asian families in the West. That's probably fair to say on average, though probably some of them are uh, interested in that sort of thing. But the the merger in some ways of uh, American Hollywood and of Asian cinema that we are starting to see, right? And the kind of the, the weird mixture, admixtures, right? Uh, of, of, of the sensibilities is going to produce, I think, not just sort of conventional blockbuster opportunities, but um, but it's also going to provide uh, you know sort of more interesting opportunities. We've talked about Minari a bunch. Um, you know, Alyssa mentioned Nomadland, uh, which isn't Asian cinema, and you know, it's sort of really kind of uh, old school sensor. It's and it's not about an Asian family, but it's a big platform for a filmmaker who was born in Asia, um, right? And there's who also the, who the Chinese market is currently agitating against. Um, I mean, uh, you know, Chloe Zhao is in sure. is in trouble with Chinese audiences because the the government is sure, mad but at it's Chloe not Zhao. just China, right? And you've also you know you, you had Parasite Ray and the Last Dragon bombed in you China. Ray and the Last win. Dragon was it was a huge bomb. I like I reject I reject I actually explicitly reject. I'm not just going to push back on. I I reject your idea that the Chinese market is going to open this up. If anything, it's going to close it down more. Uh, the The Chinese market is not is not super interested in seeing Chinese American people. They want to see they 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 want to see their conception of you know you know. Uh, I like again. I, I I think back to that Wesley Yang thread. They they want to see white people. Like it's it's crazy. I like whatever, but. You know, it is what it is. I, I think that I think that the internationalization of the market is actually very bad for Asian American representation in this regard. Um, I think that these stories are going to have to come uh, internally and appeal to, like, like Alyssa said, the smaller kind of art house markets at first. Well, and I think that we may, you know, we're talking about this as if the main vector of greater Asian and Asian American representation in movies that screen in America is American filmmakers or filmmakers working in America, right? And I think what may actually happen instead is that Americans get more interested in watching Korean language movies or, you know, China, which has been working really hard on developing a blockbuster industry at some point, actually ends up with a breakout hit in the United States, something like The Wandering Earth or The 100. Um, you know, crosses over here and becomes a sensation in the way that um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon did um, when it was released here in the U.S. And so, you know, the internationalization of the film market isn't only going to work in the direction of American exports to other countries. Um, it may very well work out as exports to us. Probably true. All right. Uh so is it uh so what do we think is the the portrayal of asians on screen in american movies and tv uh, a controversy or a controversy Alyssa? peter some people think it's controversial i would agree with that uh i think it's probably controversial uh though i i again i think it's i think Alyssa is right that the issue here is more an absence of cinema than a cinema of malice if that makes sense uh and that is a that is a harder problem to solve uh, I think, but we'll see. Uh, if you enjoy the show, and who doesn't? It's a great show, folks. Uh, make sure to head over to atma.tothebulwark.com, where we'll have a bonus members-only episode in which we pick our favorite uh, character actors. Character actors, you know, those guys. 
You can't quite remember their name, maybe, probably, but you love their work. You've seen them all over the place. Anyway, we'll choose our favorites, uh, and we hope you will come up with some of your own. Uh, and now on to the main event. Nobody, or as some are calling it, not me, some, The this is the royal some, uh, Bob Wick. Bob Wick is what this movie is known as. Bob Odenkirk stars as Hutch Mansell, a worker drone living in the suburbs with his wife, his two kids, his nice house. He's miserable. He can't get the trash out on time. He and his wife aren't intimate any longer. And his son thinks he's a loser, a feeling amplified after a break-in at their house, during which Hutch fails to take out the robbers with a golf club. Uh, Hutch isn't any old schlub, however. Turns out he is a killer of the best sort, just a straight-up murder machine, as he proves by taking out a group of drunk Russian toughs harassing the passengers and driver of a metro bus. Uh, he inadvertently sparks a gang war by doing so. Not the best move, maybe, but we all have to do what we got to do. Uh, it, this is the best scene in the movie. It's basically right at the midway point, um, and it's a smart and tough bit of action that perfectly uses the space, uh, the confines, the fixtures of a metro bus, while also revealing the quiet depths of rage and decency of good old Hutch. Uh, sadly, after this, the movie goes off the rails a bit, not just because the villain introduced at the halfway point is barely sketched out and vaguely silly, and not just because the action sequences after this feel half-formed and unthought out. They're basically just gunplay montages. Uh, mostly because there's a spectacular bit of miscasting that undermines all of the good work Odenkirk has done to prepare for this role and to convince us that he is worthy of filling it. Christopher Lloyd is cast as Hutch's dad, and while I love Christopher Lloyd, and he has a very funny bit of bad guy murder uh, in this movie that takes place entirely in a lounge chair, which is just perfect. Um, he is asked at the end of the film to run around wielding shotguns, shooting pieces, people to bits. And I'm sorry, I can buy a lot of things. I can buy Bob Odenkirk as a tough guy killer trying to go straight. I can buy the RZA as his brother for some reason, helping uh, bring down the Russian mob. And I can buy a Russian lounge singer slash secret mobster slash terrible sociopath, but I simply cannot buy the 82-year-old Lloyd hobbling around an industrial plant blowing away 30-year-old stuntman. I can't. I can't suspend that much disbelief. The whole thing looks silly. The whole final third of the movie felt silly and absurd and not in the good way like you want, and it just, it turned me off the whole thing. I, I, I was shocked at how much uh, it kind of ruined the rest of the film for me, but maybe I'm being too, too tough on it. Maybe that's because I wound up watching it at home on my TV instead of on a gloriously huge screen. Like you, Peter. Peter, did nobody play uh, better in an actual movie theater than it did in my house? I think it did. I, it, You know, this isn't necessarily a great movie, but it, it's a really enjoyable one, I, I thought. It's short. It's kind of mean without being cruel. It's funny. It's clever. It's, like, really quite violent. Again, though, without... It goes, it goes over the top but in a way that's knowing and winking and sort of doesn't that feels like like a like a very smart amount of too much and i liked it i didn't love it um but i i, I really quite liked it and i really enjoyed seeing this in a theater and um you know there are still capacity limits in theaters in washington dc this is the first weekend they have been open in over a year um but i in, in some ways i wanted to see this with an even bigger crowd because this is a movie that is kind of designed to play to a crowd um and that even in in a theater that was mostly empty um 
you know, there were just sort of great to have crowd reactions again at some of the the movie's obvious gags and sort of, uh, you know, like, oh, I can't believe that happened moments. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the uh, Christopher Lloyd scene where, you know, he's in a nursing home. And he's just sitting there and he takes out two bad guys from his like old man nursing home chair, which is just great. Um, and it's like great a great scene. It's, that it's a great perfectly. little bit. But I actually want to defend the rest of it. Yes, I think it's completely ridiculous to watch Christopher Lloyd running around this uh, industrial facility uh, shooting people with shotguns. But this movie is inherently completely ridiculous and designed, I think, on purpose to to embrace that. Um, it's very cartoonish, right? It's sort of it's got a Bugs Bunny uh, Looney Tunes sensibility to it. And even those uh, e even that last sequence, which I agree is it's not the greatest bit of action filmmaking ever made. It doesn't have the kind of uh, the grace, the coherence, the pacing or the tension that uh, that, you know, the best of John Wick has. Um, it is a bit montagey, and yet each kill is just a little gag with a punchline, right? And they just cut from kill to kill to kill to kill because each scene is just supposed to be a little Roadrunner versus Bugs Bunny, you know, Roadrunner versus uh, Wiley, Wiley E. Coyote type, um, type little tiny bit. And I really enjoyed the bits for the most part. I thought the movie had just, you know, had pretty close to the right um, sort of sense of itself, uh, and it's fun. And you know what? It, the other thing, it's it's the length of this is great and it really helps. Um, right. It's like almost exactly 90 minutes. And so in terms of the the scenes and the sequences being paced, well, you know, I think they could have been paced a little better. They could have had a, a little better sense of themselves in a little better structure but the overall movie is paced really nicely it doesn't wear out it's welcome um and it's just a big you know it's an action movie cartoon and i haven't seen something like that in a long time this is only the second time i've been in a movie theater since last march uh the other time was when i saw tenet um and gosh i just i liked seeing it on a big screen on a great sound system comfy loungers with other people who were like oh my gosh can you believe how that guy got his teeth blown out no i couldn't believe did you, it did you have did you guys see rambo last blood i did not this so i think i i literally as i was sitting here right now realized why this movie doesn't work entirely for me is because it's almost the same exact movie as rambo last blood like you got a guy who's trying to go straight and then people show up at his at his house, more or less, and he has to kill them in like increasingly cartoony ways. Except that movie, you know, has Sylvester Stallone kind of doing a comment on the whole Syl Sylvester Stallone thing, and this doesn't have that. I I don't know. Isn't just, there a little just... bit of like it's funny that Bob Odenkirk is no, but, playing an no, action see, here? He's fifty eight years old. Right. He well, comes see, from out is... of the Mister Show universe, right? But and this is, suddenly this is he's why... an action hero. See, this that's is, this why is it's why... part of why it's funny. This is why this is why Christopher Lloyd doesn't work for me is because Bob Odenkirk has remade himself in a way that makes him look reasonably uh, non ridiculous in this role. I mean, he looks like. Uh, he he looks not unlike Liam Neeson in Taken or whatever, right? It's it's like he 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 can actually physically do it, and Christopher Lloyd can't. And it and and when you're going to make when you when you do what what's the, what's the line about movies? What you, if you're if you're gonna tell if you're gonna make people believe the big nonsense, you have to get them to believe the little nonsense too. And Christopher Lloyd is just the a little nonsense too far for me. Alyssa, what did you make of Nobody? Did you love all the bloody violence? So. 
hilariously, despite the fact that I do not do well with bloody violence, I think I am the one of us who liked this movie the most. And it's possible that I am just high on Junior Mints and the effects of being in a cinema again. Um, but I actually really enjoyed it. I think it is funnier than we have discussed so far. Like the fact that the sort of first half of the movie is kind of a running gag about uh, Bob Odenkirk's like violent defense of public transportation um, is quite amusing. Um, as is a scene where he burns a bunch of Russian mobster bodies and you realize that he's destroying like an incredible vinyl collection, right? I mean, Ugh, this that is- was so- hard to watch i know you were you were really squirting. i thought of you peter i thought of you when when that scene was that you were, beautiful you were really rotel squirting. amp and everything <sighs> i know just painful it's like it's sort of a perfect dad movie right and it's a perfect dad movie not just in that the person doing the copious murdering is bob odenkirk but the that it has like the you know he's got the bus pass he's got the mundane chores he has like you know, the cool dad man cave in the basement, um, all of which become things that the movie uses. But I think the thing that I like the most about this is that its orientation towards the violence um, is kind of wrapped up in a larger frame that I found really interesting. And that is basically the movie treats Hutch's, you know, sort of surge of violence after this home invasion effectively as if not as not necessarily and not entirely as if it's like something super awesome that's happening but effectively as if he is a sober alcoholic who has fallen off the wagon and has to sort of put things right um the movie actually makes this repeated argument not for the idea that you know his life with his you know realtor wife and sort of obnoxious teenage son and adorable daughter is stultifying and horrible but actually that his life with and his possession of a family life has been a really wonderful thing for him that he has kind of let go stale um and the reason that he has to clean up this mess with this Russian mobster is not necessarily so he can go back to a life of being a violent badass, but so he can kind of protect his family from the consequences of what he's unleashed on them. And the movie's twist is really interesting, right? I mean, there is this attempted home invasion that's not terribly successful. He goes and tracks down the couple who perpetuated it and realizes that they are totally amateurs. They're not hardened criminals. He didn't take out the woman um, in the first place because he realized that her gun was not loaded. Um, and he realizes that they did it because they have a sick baby. And he realizes that he has traumatized them probably far worse than he himself was traumatized by their initial home invasion. And the the sort of spasm of violence on the bus is kind of a is a reaction to that, right? Like he expect he went to this couple's house expecting to be able to sort of revenge himself on that and then does something that has these far-reaching consequences, but that's sort of an, you know, an outgrowth of him having done something bad and undisciplined. And the movie over and over again like works in these dialogue lines about how, you know, he likes having a family. He loves the idea of going to Italy with his wife. The, you know, the moment of reconciliation with his kid, you know, he doesn't back off from his decision not to beat the hell out of these intruders, but he gives his son what he actually needed, which was, you know, sort of recognition that his son was was also trying to do the right thing for his family and that he's proud of him for being brave and backing his dad up. Um, And I just thought that was really... 
that was interesting to me. Um, and I thought well done in a not overly obvious way. Um, for I just for a movie about a guy who's basically just a human murder machine, it's surprisingly empathetic and seems to sort of like look. It's it's about looking for his humanity and helping and and about his him trying to figure out what his humanity is and how to well, how to keep it right. And it does not turn his wife into an emasculating shrew yeah. or prove his son right that he should have like brained this person with a golf club right like it actually ends up like he has been you know he the thing that like gets him in a better place with his wife is not like doing something macho and awesome in front of her it's talking to her like he literally has a conversation with her where he's like i miss having sex with you i miss being intimate like Yes, but that only comes after he has his alpha male moment on the bus. It changes his whole vim and vigor. It changes it, like the, the there the, that scene that 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 conversation is preceded by her once again saying you missed the garbage, and him kind of looking at her and her backing down a little bit like oh something something has changed here very imperceptibly with you. Uh, I mean, look, well, I'm, to be I, fair, how hard is it to get your garbage out? Like. Yeah, I don't understand why he wasn't just doing it the, the night before. Yeah. Uh, the the I I mean, look, I I obviously am always going to love a movie where a man uh, discovers that righteous violence is the the path to his own personal happiness. That 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 <laughs> always speaks sunny. to me. You're always going to love that movie. Speaks to me on a very deep level, uh, in a, in a wish fulfillment sort of way. Sonny's but been he... spending the pandemic beating the hell out of Russian goons on the well, Dallas as you, bus system. As, as you guys, we haven't uh, seen his you... knuckles in months. As you I guys, mean, I, I assume this me. explains your uh, Twitter persona. As you guys g-chatted me this morning when the new Guy Ritchie trailer came out, uh, when you saw it together in the theater. Uh, uh, last week, you were like, "Oh wow, that's going to be Sonny's favorite movie of the year," and you're right. The, we're looking forward to Wrath of Men. Going to be talking about that on this podcast, I guarantee you. Can we talk, uh, can we talk for a second, though, about just, like, how great it was to be back in a movie theater? Um, yeah. It was just awesome. Um, and I definitely, I am absolutely certain I am grading this movie on a curve because of it. But, like, Christopher Nolan is right, folks. Like, it's your home theater setup unless you're Peter. And even then, because the screen is not as big and there are not as many speakers is not a substitute for seeing something insane on the big screen. Like I just, I sort of cracked up during a trailer for like F9, the new Fast and Furious movie, just because I realized watching even like these bits and bobs of vehicular absurdity, like how different and how much more pleasurable it is to see something that ridiculous at such an expanded size and volume. Um, I and think that's I just, right, but and it's not just, but it's not just the bigger screen and the additional speakers. Um, uh, I may actually have more speakers, but um, that's another story. Uh, it's, but it's not just that. It's the presence of other people. It's the pres, it's the presence of a community of people who have just sort of all independently showed up at six p.m. or at eight thirty or whatever the time is in the same place to experience the same thing together. And there is a. Even even in a mostly empty pandemic restricted theater, there's just like a something enjoyable about seeing a movie that is designed to to appeal to people in a certain way. Right. And to know that you're there enjoying it with other people if it's pretty good. Right. And this movie, I think, like I said, I don't think it was a great movie, but I think it was a pretty good movie. And I had forgotten what it was like not just to see a movie on a big screen with a bunch of speakers, 
But to see a movie with other people who were there to enjoy a movie, the same movie, with you, and gosh, that was enjoyable. Well, and especially, I mean, if you think about movie going as sort of a proxy for other social activity that is going to slowly resume as more of us get vaccinated, you know, there's something, like, I'm going to be completely corny for a second, and Sunny, you can shoot me into the sun um, in lieu of JVL doing it, but... You know, you the three of us have seen movies together for a long time, like a lot of years at this point. There have definitely been points where we were seeing a movie together basically once a week. And Peter, it was just really, like, it was really nice to watch that Guy Ritchie trailer and basically turn to each other and be like, yep, Sonny's going to love that. Or to know that you know that, like, I really hate knife violence in movies. And to just, like, feel that sort of absolute trust that, like, I can sit there watching a scene, like, sort of half watching a scene with my hands over my eyes and just, like, no, you're going to tell me when it's like you know my comfort level and you know me well enough to like tell me when i can stop doing that and it's really good to watch movies with your friends and when i say every week i'm happy to be talking about movies with my friends uh it's because it's that is in fact what this podcast is about but also like that's how i've made friends for basically all of my life is i've gone to see movies with them and then we talk about the movies afterwards and that and the people who i've gone to see movies with are the people who end up being my friends Yeah. And I think that there is a special kind of intimacy involved in knowing someone's tastes that well, right? Like, Sunny, when you and I have seen movies together, I feel like I know when you're going to laugh. And I look over at you to, like, see you crack up at certain lines. Um, You know, it's just, there is a special, there's something special about knowing someone's tastes and reactions in that very particular way. And I was just, it was really special to me to be able to do that again. Um, It just, it made me feel like things are going to get better. Go see movies in the theaters, people. If you don't go see Bob Wick, go see Godzilla versus King Kong. We'll be talking about that one next week uh, for sure. Um, All right. uh, Sappiness aside. Sorry. Sappy jerks. I'm the girl. Uh, you know, what do we, I'm what, allowed. I, I, do we, do we think that, uh, Bob Odenkirk makes a, a, uh, a reasonable action hero? Is this, is this a good move for him? Uh, or what are we, what do we think? I think What's he's her? okay in this role. Um, but I would actually say I have trouble seeing him extend this type of thing you know, to, to other films. Um, they're going to, they would have to be written in some sense for the Bob Odenkirk uh, persona and to be a little bit more winking, a little bit more, maybe not just a little bit, a lot more comic than say your typical Liam Neeson uh, dad actioner, which is much more, it has a sort of a, a little bit of a sense of humor to itself, but they tend to be much more grim, much more dark, sort of gruff, you know, sort of feral and wolf-like in a way that like Bob Odenkirk, even even in his relatively buff 58-year-old man state, just can't quite pull off. Um, I think if he can figure out how to do it in a way that is sufficiently comic and plays to that part of his persona, then then maybe it could work. But I, he's, you know, I, he's he's better. I actually think he's better just as a sort of uh, funny, dramatic actor in, in Better Call Saul, um, which is where he really has, has shined over the last couple of years. Yeah. And I mean, Alyssa, I, what do you think? I enjoyed there was a great Vulture article about sort of his training regimen and his like desire to get this right. Um, yeah, he did take know, this seriously. And, That's really clear. Yeah. Um, and like the reading about like this five, nine, 58 year old guy, like showing up at these incredibly hardcore gyms where they train you in all sorts of martial arts and just sort of getting the hell kicked out of himself is probably like more enjoyable and credible than like 
the idea of Bob Odenkirk long-running action star. Uh, one thing I thought the movie did well is just it showed him sustaining a lot of damage, right? Like it it did a fairly effective job of saying like, yeah, he can do this, but not without cost um, in a way that, you know, I think these sort of old man actioners tend to like sort of nod at, but not really develop. Um, and they did a better job of like, you know, he's not young. He is 5'9". He's not 6'2", like these guys. He's beating up on the bus. Um, and the movie didn't pretend that was not the case, which is a wise decision. But I think does reflect the fact that this is maybe not like a permanent career turn for him. But I'm glad he's super buff. It must be nice to be buff Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> buff Bob Odenkirk. All right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on nobody? Alyssa. Thumbs up. Peter. Thumbs up. Uh, thumbs down for me, sadly. I really wanted to like this. And I did like the first 45 minutes to an hour or so. But I don't know. That last third just did not work for me. Uh, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on the greatest character actors of all time, or at least the ones that are working today, uh, at atma.thebulwark.com. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we'll die. Uh, if you didn't love today's episode... Complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 